Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. It's been more than 50 years since humans last set foot on the lunar surface, but the recent success of NASA's Artemis One mission has put the U.S. back on track to return humans to the moon. As the Artemis program proceeds, space enthusiasts remain skeptical of NASA's timeline and its expensive space launch system rocket, especially as the reusable SpaceX Starship comes online. To find out more about the future for NASA, as well as private companies like SpaceX, I'm joined today by Eric Berger. Eric is the senior space editor at Ars Technica and author of 2021's Liftoff, Elon Musk, and the desperate early days that launched SpaceX. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. I I think you have one of the best journalism jobs in America. I hope you feel that way, too. I have a fantastic job. I mean, I... I love space. I live and breathe it every day, and I get to write about what I think is really happening out there. It's 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 pretty nice. I I kind of think it's almost like someone who is covering, you know, the internet maybe in the in the late nineties, where all of a sudden there's just, you know, there's just so much happening. And I remember you recounting, you know, what 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 happened in twenty twenty two, and it was a it was a pretty long list uh, of of space achievements. Yeah, you know, I, I first got into space about more than 15 years ago. And at the time, it was really pretty dull, you know, not to not to downgrade the spatial program, but it was, you know, kind of kind of dull. I mean, they would do six, seven launches a year, go up, work on the International Space Station, come down, everything pretty much worked like clockwork. And, and it, it, there just wasn't a whole lot happening. And it just it's it's really accelerated, accelerated since then. And you just have so much happen in the United States commercially abroad it's just it's just a very vibrant field and as you say it's like we're kind of feels like we're in the early days of the spaceflight revolution when will the united states return to the moon and what is going to take us there yeah so we returned to the moon uh last year right (laughs) we we sent an uncrewed spacecraft orion around the moon that really was the first step back to the moon um and i think you know, probably in about two years from now, we'll send the first crewed mission up there. This is going to be a mission where they fly out to the moon, loop around and come back. So it's not like they're going to go to the surface or anything like that. Um, but that will be the first people going into deep space in more than 50 years. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have a lunar landing later this decade. I don't really feel comfortable putting a date out there. I think it's probably 2027, 2028, maybe. Um, and most likely, you know, they're going to launch on Space Launch System rocket built by NASA and its contractors and go up on Orion and, and land on the moon in a SpaceX Starship. Is there a uh, is there a current official target date? Yeah, it's 2025, but that's completely unrealistic. <laughs> what like what hasn't happened to make 2025 seem highly unlikely to you? Well, the first thing is they've got to do uh, the crewed flight, the Artemis 2 mission around the moon. Um, and, and we're probably 22 to 24 months away from that happening. And so they're not going to turn around then and do Artemis three the same year. Um, and then you've got two other really important pieces to put together. SpaceX has to 
you know, fly its starship. It has to do a bunch of orbital refueling tests. Then it has to actually go and land on the moon and take off and show that everything's ready ahead of that lunar landing. Um, and the other big piece of this is there's a private company in Houston, Axiom Space, that is building the spacesuits for Artemis Three. These are the suits that will allow the crew to get out on the surface of the moon, walk around, um, and and explore. And this company has never built a spacesuit before. Um, and they just got the contract last fall. So it's going to take time for Artemis II to happen and, and everything has to go right there. There's a bunch of planning that has to go on and then you've got to have the these the Starship and the spacesuits pieces come together. Is there a chance that the rocket that ends up taking uh, uh, Americans to the surface will end up being a Starship rocket? There is a chance, but... At this point, I would think it's it's a fairly low one. And the, the fact is, you know, the Space Launch System rocket, which took a decade and billions and billions and billions of dollars to develop, finally did fly um, in November of last year. And by all accounts, the flight was flawless. You know, it's pretty impressive for the debut launch of this rocket for it to perform as well as it did. And so I think NASA has pretty high confidence now in that launch vehicle and, you know, it will have more confidence in Orion after the second mission. And so I, I do think that initially that's how we're going to get to the moon. I think eventually that will change. Um, and, and it would not surprise me to see astronauts launching on, say, a Crew Dragon um, and rendezvousing with Starship and going to the moon that way. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, if you can do that, you don't need to spend the three or four billion dollars every mission to go to the moon on an SLS rocket and an Orion. You know, you can do it with SpaceX vehicles for probably one quarter of the cost. Based on that cost uh, structure that you mentioned, uh, why why are we even doing this? Why are we even doing a rocket that you know for, that may never fly again after that moon mission, Artemis three? It it just seems like a lot of wasted money and why don't we just wait for starship to get out the kinks launch and go that way so th that's a great question the reality is that we built the sls rocket because in 2010 there were two senators k bailey hutchison of texas and um and bill nelson of florida who were looking at the end of the space shuttle program and all the jobs in florida and texas that were bound up by that and said well we've got to have a replacement for this um and there were contractors who had been working on the space shuttle program building the solid rocket boosters the engines um and and the structures and so forth saying hey we gotta you know we gotta preserve all these jobs and so you know if you look at the space launch system rocket it uses the same engines as the space shuttle it uses very similar solid rocket boosters on the sides and the, the diameter of that, that core stage is the same diameter as the external tank of the space shuttle. So this is, I mean, all of those jobs were essentially rolled from the space shuttle into the space launch system rocket. Now, at the time that decision was made, you know, SpaceX had not launched a single Falcon 9 rocket. So I don't think there was the confidence in the private sector then that there is today. Um, the fact of the matter is SLS will continue flying for as long, I think, as Starship is not shown to be a viable vehicle. Once Starship starts flying like the Falcon 9 rocket, which by the way, flew 61 times last year, you know, once it starts flying like that, there will be no need for a rocket that costs five or 10 times as much, is not reusable and can only fly once a year. There'd be no need for that. But, you know, it's, it's one, it's a political thing, lots of political support for that program. And two, as of today, there is no viable alternative, even though we all know one is coming down the line. 
so what is the sort of the best estimate of sort of the the starship like i don't know launch agenda launch tempo from here on out what do we have a good idea what that's going to look like well, I'm happy to make predictions with the proviso that they're they're going to be almost certainly wrong. Um, <laughs> no, that they'll uh, duly noted, duly noted. A lot of um, I do think we're getting closer to the first Starship orbital test flight. So this is this is going to be a, a a big moment. You're going to have a rocket with 33 very powerful Raptor engines taking off from South Texas. That's the first stage, and then the second stage is the Starship upper stage is going to go up and 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 go briefly into orbit before it comes back down near Hawaii. Um, and, you know, that is going to prove that, A, the rocket works. And I still think that's kind of a crapshoot because, you know, this is a rocket with 33 engines has never flown. These, you know, we haven't seen these Raptor engines in spaceflight before. And then, you know, it's also very important to get data on bringing Starship back from orbit if it does, if it does make it there. So I think we'll see maybe two or three test flights this year. And then next year, maybe half a dozen test flights. Um, and then perhaps in 2020, late 2024, 2025, we'll start to see some operational missions carrying Starlink. And also they'll start doing some fueling tests. So one of the things that Starship has to do is it's got enough fuel to get to orbit this massive vehicle. And it can carry like 100 tons to low Earth orbit um, and, and then, you know, lands back on Earth. But, but to go anywhere, to go to the moon, go to Mars or, or what have you, it needs to be refueled. Um, and that's a technology we've never really demonstrated in space, right? The storage of these cryogenic propellants. So, you know, Starship runs on liquid oxygen and and liquid methane. Um, And so we've never shown the ability to store these propellants in space because you have concerns like boil off. These propellant depots, if they're sitting in the sun, the temperature is much higher than is, 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 you know, able to keep them at, at liquid temperatures. And then, and then you've got to show you can transfer them from, from one vehicle to another. And so SpaceX will be doing those tests almost from the beginning of their Starship test program. When I, you know, when I was a, when I was a full-time journalist, I'm pretty sure that when I would use the word game changer, editors would hate that. They would strike that word out. But Starship seems like it, it would be, if all those ifs are solved, it would be kind of a game changer. I mean, it's a, it's a big rocket. It's, you know, it's, if you think about it, you know, everyone remembers the Saturn V rocket from the Apollo program, um, this massive launch vehicle. But but all that came back to Earth was that tiny little capsule at the top, right? The first stage, second stage, third stage, all fell into the ocean. The, the capsule came back, but then they're put in museums because they weren't reusable. The goal of Starship is for that whole stack to be reusable. So the first stage comes back, Starship comes back, and then you fly them again at some point. I think we're we're probably years and years away from those kinds of operations. But if and when SpaceX gets there, it does cha- entirely change the paradigm of, of spaceflight that we've known since the late 1950s when, you know, when, when Sputnik first went to orbit, um, which is now 65 years ago. Uh, it's always been a premium on size, you want small vehicles that can fit on top of rockets in the payload fairings and mass because it costs so much to get to, to low Earth orbit. If Starship works, it completely or almost completely removes those constraints. You can launch often and it's got this huge payload fairing that you can fit, you know, you could fit elephants inside. I mean, you can fit just massive structures inside of this thing. And 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 so it, it all of a sudden it becomes... A problem. The problem of scarcity 
of getting stuff to orbit no longer exists. It becomes not about the one thing we can do in orbit, but all the things we can do because it costs so much less to get there and you can bring much larger structures. So right now we we look at when we look at uh SpaceX we're looking at partial reusability, right? So and what you're talking about is the whole thing. Every, every everything you can you can use more than once. Yeah, right now with the Falcon 9 rocket which which I would submit is is really a, a a modern day miracle, you're reusing the first stage, which is about 60% of the mass of the rocket. You get all those nine engines back and they're now up to flying, refine those first stages 15 times. And then I think they're going to continue to push the limits. They're also getting back the payload fairing, which is that protective structure on top that then falls away once the rocket gets to orbit and the satellite comes out and, you know, kind of pops out like a jack in the box. Um, that payload fairing costs like five or $6 million. So it's not insubstantial that they're re- collecting those, refurbishing them and flying again. What is not reusable right now is the upper stage. It has a single Merlin vacuum engine. And, you know, that those probably cost 10 to $12 million to manufacture. Um, so that's that's a significant piece that they have to build. Every time they launch, they have to build a second stage. An SLS launch versus a Starship launch where everything is reusable. Like, wh- do we have a... A guess on what the, what the difference of the, each of those launches? The cost difference. So the 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 NASA Inspector General has put a cost on a single SLS launch with an Orion spacecraft on, and it said that's four point one billion dollars. That is exclusive of development costs, which for those vehicles are now about forty billion dollars. So if you just say, okay, we're going to ignore the fact that you know we spent all this money, it's still four point one billion dollars to launch one of these a year. Um, Starship, you know, we, we don't know how much it's going to cost. Um, but if it's made out of stainless steel and you're getting all those Raptor engines back and you're flying each vehicle like 10 times or 20 times, you know, the, the incremental cost of launch is going to be on the order of a hundred million or less. So that's a 40 X cost difference. Again, once once Starship becomes operational, and it's probably at least five years away from that point, but that's the future we're headed into. And, I, and and it is coming. I mean, you look at what's happened with the Falcon 9, you know, they 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 will get there, right? Or get close. Uh, we talk a lot about sort of the reusability of these rockets. Does SpaceX also just sort of make them cheaper than, than competitors? Is, is that the only factor in the decline in launch costs? So yes, they they also have, you know, Musk is pretty cutthroat on costs. As we, the, whole right Twitter, the whole Twitter <laughs> experiment, right? I mean, he he runs a, he runs a tight ship. But they one of the very important things that SpaceX did, and a lot of the new space companies that have come afterward have tried to emulate, is they very much did vertical integration, and that just means that you know prior to two thousand, the way you built your rocket in this country was. You know, okay, your United Launch Alliance, okay, you buy your engines from Aerojet, you buy your structures from someone, you buy your software from someone, you buy your payload fairing from RUAG, you buy your upper stage engine from Aerojet, and then you sort of integrate that all together in your factory after paying a premium for all these different products, and you launch the rocket, right? You're the operator. Well, in SpaceX's, they came along and said, no, no, we're going to build the engines, we're going to build as much of each of these rockets as we can in-house. And then, okay, when we need to outsource some components, we will. And, and all these other companies that have come since, like like Rocket Lab has tried to do the same. You know, Relativity Space is trying to 
additively manufactured. So 3D print its entire rocket inside its factory. And so they've really changed the game. And that vertical integration has allowed them to control costs and move, move more quickly. After we land on the moon uh, via an SLS rocket uh, and I guess a SpaceX uh, lander, is the American space program sort of at that point government doing more sciencey things and the private sector doing private sector things? What what does the American space program sort of comprehensively look like after that after that landing? We don't really know. Um, it, it, it again, we're talking about something that's probably about four or five years in the future, and it's it's very difficult to say where we're headed but, but but i think i can say this like i'm very glad that, by the way that you say four or five years in the future not four or five decades i like the fact that we keep talking years yeah. single digits no i i mean after 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 the success of artemis one we are definitively on the way back to the moon um, i mean this is a great time in u.s space policy it's healthier than i've ever seen it i think in in my lifetime or since certainly since i've been covering this i mean the nasa united states space program has problems has difficulties has challenges but we are on a healthy trajectory i think so we can all feel good about that it's it's just going to take a little longer than i think any of us would like um but but the way nasa has been going and, and i don't see this trend changing is is it wants to be a customer but not, and not the customer. So it is looking to buy services from companies rather than sort of top-down build process. So like the SLS rocket was procured through a cost plus program where NASA designed the rocket, its engineers sort of were side by side with the contractors at Boeing and elsewhere. And sort of, you know, it, it costs a lot, it takes a long time. And NASA sort of oversees every step of the process. And it's the only customer, like no one else wants to fly in the SLS rocket the military doesn't, private customers don't, because it costs way too much, right? It's, it's just NASA's science program doesn't want to use it. Um, and, and so NASA would rather be a customer. So like right now, SpaceX launched 60 Falcon 9 rockets last year. NASA bought like six or seven of them. And the rest of them were other customers and, and SpaceX's Starlink missions. Um, so it, 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 and so it's, it's buying services. Like the spacesuit contract, it's giving to Axiom and, and to another company, it's 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 basically leasing spacesuits. And the lander, it's like buying the landing service on the moon. Um, it's it's going to private space stations next decade and it's buying time on those space stations. It's not going to own those space stations. So it's, NASA wants to procure services. So, so NASA would like to see an ecosystem where it is one customer for activity on the moon alongside maybe the European Space Agency or private companies or, or or Hilton hotels. You know, I don't know, but they they sort of want to be one customer in that 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 area. I think the question in my mind is will there be more entities that want to get involved in in human spaceflight or exploration of the moon or will will this be a NASA led program for a long time simply because it's so expensive and there's not that much there for people to do beyond sort of collecting rocks and, and doing science experiments for NASA. And that's the question I, I don't think we've answered. And it, it may be NASA for a long time, unless you do really get vehicles like Starship or, or, or Blue Origins, New Glenn, that, that sort of come along and really do bring down the costs uh, of transportation to and from the moon. How far behind is Blue Origin? Very far behind. Um, it's... It's you know they were founded before SpaceX was and and they still haven't put anyone in orbit 
Um, they they just move slower. That's that's kind of Jeff Bezos' philosophy in spaceflight. He wants to go very methodically. Um, I don't think their CEO, a guy named Bob Smith, has been particularly dynamic in terms of getting them moving forward quickly. Um, but if they ever do get their act together, you know, they have a large and talented team of engineers. They could really, they could really, you know, kick some butt in this field. But but they're way behind, you know, SpaceX in terms of of building rockets. So, you know, the the New Glenn rocket probably doesn't launch for at least two years. Um, that's a massive vehicle, but but then they're going to have to go through some growing pains, and it's going to take a while. And so I, I don't think New Glenn will ever sort of be able to catch up to Starship. Yeah, I'm interested in, interested in there being sort of a permanent uh, moon base. Yeah, that will that be operated by NASA, or that be operated by somebody else? It's a great question. I mean, I think NASA would love for Lockheed or I don't know who to say step forward and say we are going to build a lunar surface station, and NASA says great, we want to buy fifty percent of the capacity, right, um, and we'll give you. $2 billion a year for that service. Um, the question is whether any private company is going to step up and do something as audacious as that. I mean, that that's, that's one of the real ways in which SpaceX has changed the game is they have sort of stepped forward with these audacious visions. Um, and then NASA has kind of come in and bought, like when, when, when SpaceX created Starship, NASA wasn't interested. NASA wasn't a customer. And now look, they're giving them $3 billion for to land on the moon twice. Um, and so that's like, so like, I think if you had a big enough vision to do that, then you could, you could get NASA to come on board. The problem is if you're a publicly traded company, you know, or it's really hard for a company other than SpaceX or Blue Origin, which have sort of these well-endowed founders, it's, it's really hard to convince your board of directors to go along with something like that. How many how many space stations will will there be, will there be in orbit by the end of this decade? I know you love the predictions, but I'm still no no. I'm happy sense. to make them. Just you know, it's, <laughs> it's it's all fluid, right? So the International Space Station comes down in 2030. That's down. China's space station is still flying. I think um, Chang'e. Um, and Russia's talking about a space station, but I don't think there's any way they have a replacement up by then. So then the question becomes, there are four different companies trying to build commercial space stations for NASA. And again, NASA has given them some money for development, but they're not paying for the stations. They ultimately want to be customers on them. And of those four, one is one is Blue Origin led by them. One is NanoRacks and Lockheed Martin. Another is Axiom Space. And then a fourth is Northrop Grumman. I would put the over under at one and a half of those. Um, and I think NASA would be very happy if one was sort of demonstrably functionable by, by 2030. The skeptics will say, okay, so what are we going to do on those space stations? Some science. How satisfying is the answer? We don't know what we're going to do, but you know, we have to get there and figure it out. And you know, who knew what the internet was going to look like in 1990 versus what it looks like today? Yeah. I mean, I think you've got to build it and see if people will come, right? Uh, you know, NASA is going to continue to do scientific research, um, human research, astronauts, you know, living in space for long durations. But then you've got to see how much interest there is in sports or filming movies or, you know, holidays or from other countries like UAE who want to have their own astronauts up there doing research or from private astronauts. And so, you know, for, for about two years now, we've had the capability to put astronauts into low earth orbit 
on private space missions and, and SpaceX is, you know, with that has that capability. There's been some interest, but there hasn't been like an overwhelming amount of interest. And so the jury is very much out on a commercial potential. And I think the only real way to answer that question is, is when someone figures out how to make money by having people living and working and doing things in space, then that market explodes. And until that happens, it's very tenuous. I, I am very excited about the notion of going to Mars and humans permanently living on Mars. Is is that a 2030s thing, a 2040s, uh, you know, a 2070s thing? So the way to, the way I would look at it is, you know, that kind of thing is never happening without the private sector, because there is no reason at all no good reason for NASA to send people to Mars. The, the amount of science that can be done by rovers at one one hundredth the cost without having to worry about safety issues, it, the rovers can do a lot of science. They can't do it all. There's some things humans can do better and faster, but it's just not worth it to send people there. Maybe, you know, maybe if you, it's like sort of a, a US, China, Russia, Japan kind of like, pan worldwide mission to sort of promote peace and go to Mars. I could see something like that, but, but there's just no good reason for NASA to send humans to Mars. Um, and, and they will talk about it. They will say, we're going to the moon and Mars, but NASA is not going to Mars before 2050 and probably not by then. Um, so then the question becomes is, okay, is SpaceX sincere about going to Mars? Yes. Do they have the wherewithal to work together with NASA to send human missions to Mars? Not right now. Um, but if Starlink, this internet from space, is a successful business, and there are some signs that it will be, and 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 some signs that now they got a long way to go. But if that is a success, then the plan is for SpaceX to use that money to help finance Starship and and sort of take steps to to building some kind of settlement on Mars. And I think if SpaceX can build a credible transportation system to Mars, then NASA comes along for those first couple of missions because there's lots of reasons for them to want to go. And there's lots of reasons for SpaceX to want NASA to go. Most notably, probably it just it clears the regulatory hurdles away for them. Um, if if it's going to happen before 2050, it would be a public-private partnership with sort of SpaceX leading the way in terms of the vision. It's sort of amazing like how much of this seems to depend on the interest and will of one person, Elon well, Musk. It's true. But I mean, you know, if you look at the space industry today, SpaceX dominates it. Like they launched more rockets than all the other companies in the United States by like a factor of three, two or three. You know, they, they equaled China in terms of launch output. They're one of three entities in the world that has the capability to put humans into orbit. They operate more satellites than any company or country in the world. They're building the world's largest and most powerful rocket. I mean, they they are kind of at the forefront of all these areas and, and they're they're the ones pushing and pushing. I mean, if you take SpaceX out of the equation, then NASA's moon program looks an awful lot like Apollo. Right. Um, which was not sustainable. So yeah, I mean, a lot of it does hinge on sort of the success of SpaceX and their ability to push and pull this commercial spaceflight initiative forward. And hopefully by lowering the cost of access to space, you can find ways to make money into space, which in turn fuels more commercial spaceflight activity. You watch the TV show For All Mankind. I have, yes. Uh, do you enjoy that television program? Yeah, it's, it's, an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting take on the future that's really well done. 
I think Elon Musk may have said that at that uh, SpaceX event where they showed that fantastic video, which I've used about 30 times in my newsletter, um, where he said the window is open, but it might not be open forever to do what we're doing. Do you think he's wrong? Do you think it is sort of permanently open because of the advances, because of declining costs, because of the geopolitical competition uh, from from China and from and from other nations? It's sort of the space window open and it's going to just stay open. I don't know if it's going to stay open. He's concerned that it won't stay open. And one of the reasons that he would have cited a couple of years ago is, you know, this era of cheap money ending and that era of cheap money has ended. And so that's going to have, this is, this is going to have a profound impact on a lot of the commercial space companies that have started up in the last five to 10 years. A lot of those are not going to survive the next few years. Um, and you know, Congress is talking about holding budgets flat, and that that probably may impair spaceflight activity as well. You know, so that's that's one area, sort of like, is this funding opportunity window going to be open long enough for it to happen? And he's also worried about like you know, um, existential threats to humanity. Now, whether any of those really come up in the next five to ten years or fifty years, I don't know. But you know, we're a little closer to a nuclear war than we were, you know, twelve months ago. If, if there's an accident, if there if there's if there's an accident, uh, another another challenger, another Columbia. Do you think again, do you think we're sort of into this enough? And there's been enough progress that we will push forward or will we retreat? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think about that a lot because if there is, God forbid, something to happen with a Crew Dragon spacecraft and or, or the Falcon 9 rocket with with people on board and, and you know, NASA astronauts die. Um, that really would bring out the critics of SpaceX who have been awfully quiet in the last few years. I mean, think about it. Like the only way we're getting to space right now with people is on the Falcon 9 rocket. And imagine if, you know, we'd had these last 10 months or 11 months of tensions with Russia and, and, and still had to rely on, on them to get our people into space. It's so, so like a lot of the critics of SpaceX have kind of shut up because it's clear that they are so, they, they have done such a, service for this country um but you know if if they have some major accident then, then all those questions come again well he's reckless i mean look elon self-sabotages himself a lot in that regard i mean he the way he acts on twitter sometimes is very is pretty unserious um and and you know officials at the dod and nasa see that and so like it, this that would embolden critics to say hey wait a minute why are we giving spacex all this money if they're not acting responsibly and especially if the accident was caused by some some negligent act on spacex trying to move too fast or save money or something like that you know i don't think an accident like that will happen you know nasa and spacex work very diligently to ensure it doesn't happen but i do think that would be a setback whether it would be an absolute killer I don't think so because I suspect NASA would stand by SpaceX regardless. They're very good about that when their contractors have an accident that NASA sort of, you know, you know, sort of stands by them and goes to the accident investigation and so forth. But, you know, if you put people lives at risk, then that may change. It's, it's a great question and I hope we don't have to find an answer to it. Eric, uh, great stuff. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you, James. <laughs> 